This was recorded at the 23rd Chinwag Live event, Christmas Futures Crystal Balls, on the 4th of December 2008 at the Slug and Lettuce in Soho, London. The panel featured Jonathan Michener from BT, Simon Collister from Weber Shandwick, Jamie Coomber from Profero, Neville Hobson from nevillehobson.com, Ewan McLeod from Mobile Industry Review, with Richard Titus from BBC Future Media and Technology Charing. It was sponsored by the UK Trade and Investment. The event was produced by Julia Island for Chinwag. So, uh, hi, I'm Richard Titus. Uh, I have a new title, so I'll start there. Um, I am, as of a couple of weeks ago, controller of future media, audio, music, and mobile at the BBC. Um, so what does that mean? I have no bloody idea. <laughs> no, so um, a quick background. I'm going to ask everyone here to sort of do like a two-minute synopsis of themselves. Uh, I'm a Yank, if you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, uh, they have meetings about it regularly at the BBC about whether you know that's appropriate. Um, <laughs> oh, good, I got a chuckle. It's going to have to keep working my material. Um, so, uh, uh, previous to being at the BBC, I lived in America uh, in, Amer- in Los Angeles and New York. I founded a company called Schematic. Uh, I'm not sure if many of you are familiar with. It's a rather large interactive agency, uh, which I sold to WPP. And previously, I was one of the founders of a company called Razorfish. Um, which everyone seems to know. Most people don't know. It belongs to Microsoft now. Uh, and that's my two minutes. Do you want to start down there? Okay. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Neville Hobson. Um, I'm a blogger, uh, a communicator, I describe myself, uh, and a podcaster. And what does that mean? Well, I write a blog, nevillehobson.com, which I started writing back in 2002, uh, figured out why I was writing it in about 2004, and I've continued writing it since. It serves as my, I guess, like a lot of you who write blogs, my kind of outlet. Uh, but also, it's a business tool. I don't do brochures and mail shots and stuff. It, it is my online presence. Um, and uh, what I do is I work, uh, I work by myself or I work for other companies, but I'm not employed by anyone as an employee helping organizations with um, communication and how it can help them meet their business goals. What does that mean? PR stuff, employee communication, whatever it takes where they have an issue, they need to connect with people. Increasing that means social media. Um, I started a podcast with a colleague in the U.S. back in the early 2005 called For Immediate Release, the Hobson and Holtz Report, uh, PR, tech stuff, two shows a week, uh, an hour each. We've just completed the 402nd episode. Uh, It still amazes me there isn't something like this in the UK solely. I'm truly still astonished. Uh, Anyway, we do this across the Atlantic and uh, we have paid sponsors, so it's moved well out of the hobby stage now. And uh, I wear a number of other hats too, one of which is a venture I joined recently with a PR group called Bond PR International based in Maidenhead to help develop some social media things for their clients. So um, uh, I've been involved with Chinweg once before uh, over a year ago here, uh, PR Unspun, it was called. And some of you might have been here for that. So that was a lot of fun to talk about PR predictions. So, uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to some interesting discussions with my colleagues here. Thanks, Hello, um, I'm Jane Coomber. I'm Head of Digital Strategy at Prefero. Um, for those of you who don't know Prefero, we used to position ourselves as an advertising agency. And now I guess we're more content creation um, website build agency because, well, as you'll hear from what we're going to talk today, advertising is turning into something different from what it was. Um, 
So my role there is to look at trends and look at what's coming up, how people are using new technologies, how they're using social networks, and then advise clients on how best they can actually get involved with these spaces. Um, I'm also a senior writer for Trend Hunter magazine, where, again, I represent, from a digital and a marketing perspective, what, what's happening out there, what people are playing with, how they're playing with them, um, just sort of take learnings from that. Thank you. Yeah, good evening. Uh, Jonathan Michener. I'm futurologist for BT. And you get, you, know, you get two questions, really, when you're a futurologist. What does a futurologist do, and how can I become one? Um, which I suppose, I suppose is flattering. Um, so what, uh, what we do, it's a really nice job. I mean, I, I, I was saying to somebody earlier, I think you're really lucky in this world at the moment if you, if you find a project in your company or whatever that you really enjoy doing. And you're exceedingly lucky if you find something, a whole job that you enjoy doing. Uh, I wear two hats for BT, and I love doing both of them, so I count myself really fortunate. The first is futurologist, and... For those of you that aren't familiar with what, what that entails, it's an awful lot of different things. It, it's an awful lot of freedom to think about what might be coming down the pipe, and not just in years to come, but in decades to come, and that's really interesting. You meet an awful lot of interesting people around the world uh, who are thinking about the same sort of things, and you uh, reason about that, and you come to some conclusions. The other part of it is giving that back and helping our customers. So I do a role for BT with Futurologists, which is helping our key customers understand what's coming down the pipe for them over those sort of timescales and how that might affect their business. And just as we've heard uh, from Jamie that you know, the business of advertising has changed, uh, most people's businesses are changing because of uh, technology and a lot of other things. So, so it's trying to prepare the ground for that and helping our customers. And we also do a lot of uh, keynotes and uh, uh, talks because if, you, if you're a futurologist, then people say, well, can you come and open our conference and tell us what the future's going to be or the lottery numbers or something daft. Lottery numbers, incidentally, are off limits tonight. They're far too, far too short-term for me. Um, and the only other thing I think is, is that... Oh, my, my second hat is, is, is to look at gadgets and devices and those futures, and that's a really good, good job for a guy because most guys like playing with gadgets even, and, uh, and I get paid for it. And it's, uh, so it's really nice, uh, but it's really important to BT because our company is a service company now. Uh, we offer online services, and, and increasingly so. And we want that experience to be the best possible that we can in the future for, for customers. Uh, you can always improve, but we want it to be optimal. And the only way we can do that is to look at what gadgets are coming along because we won't have a, a monopoly on what people, like we had in the past, about what gadget people will use to get those services. Right? There's going to be so many out there, far more even than today. And so, uh, so that, that provides flexibility that we have to cope with in order to make those experiences as good as possible. And I think you've got to start with the customer and, and, and how they find the experience. So that's the, that's the two things. And I'm really like the last thing. The last thing is that there's no slides tonight, which is really good. Because if you're a futurologist, right, you have to, you have to ha always check that nobody's changed your job title on the first slide. Because if they've missed off the first three letters of futurologist, then you, um, you end up doing a very different talk. <laughs> Good evening. Hi, I'm Simon Collister. I'm currently head of digital with Weber Shanwick in the UK, specifically within their consumer practice, um, which is a very interesting and new role for Weber Shanwick. Um, they, they have a central digital team which works across the UK and uh, Europe and EMEA to an extent, um, and they're getting pulled, as you would imagine, given the, the range and scope of our clients in every direction. Um, so my job is essentially to sit within the consumer team and be the kind of 100% 
um, go-to source of information on all things digital and social media for um, our consumer guys. Um, which, so far, I'm three weeks into the job, um, has been extremely frantic and exciting. Um, it's, it's a really good opportunity, not just in terms of devising, you know, PR strategy or social, digi- social media digital strategy, but also educating people. And the beauty of the way that we work with the Weber Shanwick is that um, as digital guys or digital specialists, if you like, we aren't required to, to bring in revenue. So Weber Shanwick, obviously, very, with, a, with, the, with a large amount of foresight, um, decided to park the revenue responsibility and ensure that all our account guys are completely up to date and kind of up to speed on everything they need to be to ensure that all the campaigns they devise for clients are entirely digital, um, deal with social media, and more importantly, and this is a kind of a, a goal for me, is to kind of realise that we're not so much dealing with consumers anymore, but also producers and you know real people, um, which is one of my uh, kind of I say goals for my new role is to is to kind of ensure that, that when we're devising campaigns and thinking about target audiences, we're thinking about real people at the end of the um, at the end of the computer or or out and it, at events. Um, I also write a blog, simoncollister.com. It's not been updated um, much this month as I've just started this new job, but um, I like to write about uh, PR, marketing to an extent, social media, um, and more on the social side of things, not so much the media side, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about what, for me, is the big difference between the, kind of, the media side of social media and the social side of social media, um, and social wins out above technology and media every time, at least. Um, at least in my professional role, but it's also a personal belief I hold. So it's good to have a job that marries the two together. Thank you, Simon. Congratulations on the, the new job. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Ewan. I run Mobile Industry Review. Uh, sometimes I'm a blogger. Sometimes I'm a publisher. I haven't worked out which yet. Sometimes uh, I just mess around. Uh, I have uh, four other businesses, but my, my main passion is mobile. Uh, way back when I started a company um, to do SMS to screen in nightclubs, I thought it'd be rather cool if you walked into a nightclub and the giant screens of which most nightclubs generally have giant screens that are usually not used. Um, I thought it'd be rather cool if you could text a screen and, and just say that girl in the red dress looks very sexy, etc., etc. Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, I started that, I think... 2004 or 5, I can't remember, um, and got a baptism of fire of just how shit the mobile industry was then and really how shit it is today. It really is quite bad still. Um, I, I sold that company. I was extremely annoyed when we were doing some really cool things. We were the first people on the planet to do MMS, picture messaging to screen in nightclubs, or, or to, to, to screen anywhere. I phoned up New Media Age. I had a chat to Justin Pierce for about uh, 20 seconds, and he put the phone down very politely on me and said, no, not interested. I thought we were doing some really cool stuff. I was very annoyed when no one was interested. So I thought, screw this. Uh, my next business was uh, screwing um, mo- the mobile publishing market. So I now control... Um, uh, and mobile new media, but mobile, uh, I now control 250,000 of the most influential um, uh, people that work in and around mobile. If you don't read, please do. I very much appreciate your, your viewpoints. Um, and I continually, each day, I'm busy winding up mainstream media uh, with, with our blog, stroke publishing network, uh, and the like. Um, I have three handsets on me right now. I typically carry around five. If you have any questions about mobile, uh, please don't hesitate to ask. I'm looking forward to giving you my opinions, and they're very direct. Um, They do wind up the likes of Nokia. 
uh, who've just brought out yet another rubbish film today, by the way. That's the, the N, N97. Please don't bother. Don't encourage them. Uh, so I'm looking forward to giving you my views. Thank you. Well done. So uh, uh, I haven't done one of these before. In fact, I've never attended one before. Uh, so what I'd like to do is uh, I'm going to throw out a few questions and hopefully throw them out to one person with a, a view to having everyone sort of come in and chime in a bit, and then we'll go to the audience. And hopefully if, I've done, if we've done our jobs well, I'll, we won't have to talk any more for the rest of the night. Um, however, if I do have to give someone the hook, I'll do so politely. Um, my first question, uh, and I'm going to ask the futurologist at the table, is uh, 2013, will more people be using mobile devices to surf what we currently think of as the fixed-line web than uh, computers? What do you think? Yes. Ah, well, <laughs> Next question. Next question. Yeah. No, I... Okay. Yeah, I think it's undoubtedly true. I think... Um, it's it's more interesting because again, 2013 is a little bit short term for me, but I'll try tonight. Um, I, I think it's what the impact will be of, of surfing the web on, on mobile devices for people, because uh, that's that's really what it means. I mean, invention. People people do patents all the time in these com- in companies like mine and, and, and other companies, and and come up with new stuff, new technology. But it's not really an innovation until it makes a difference for a customer. And actually, what the what the impact is going to be of people having this thing in their pocket that can tell them anything they want to know at any time, any place, uh, and, and not just have to prepare the day before they go out to shop to, to, to price check and all that sort of stuff, but not just on shopping and price checking. It's not just retailing. I talk to almost every sector that exists in my job about the future, and the impact of surfing on that mobile device is just going to change the way all of those things happen, so yes. Do you want to chime in there at all? Uh, yes, I absolutely agree. Um, I, I think I've just written down some stats there just so I remembered them. Um, I'd, I'd like to think more, more away from surfing the web, per se, to services. What I really want to be doing is I want to be walking down uh, La Rosette, or however you pronounce it there, in Cannes. I want to be walking down the front of the beach there, and I want to take out my mobile device, not my mobile handset. I'm not interested in phones that have been screw around with so they do internet. That's, that's your average Nokia. Okay? That's your average candy bar, rubbish, Sony Ericsson-style phone. Those are handsets that do a shit internet. Okay? What I'm looking for is a mobile device, start something like, a P, like an iPhone, but not, not specifically the iPhone, um, that allows me to say, do you know what? I need to send flowers to my mother tomorrow. Uh, I, I want to send them now. I want three clicks, click, 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 done. I don't want to think about what my mum's address is, what my credit card number is. I want to do that. I then want to phone my friend in the state. I want to know he's available. I want to speak to him right there and then. I want to send him a live video, kind of what this guy you know, is doing here. I hope you're you in a video or are you... Yeah, wicked. Good man. Um, so he's, he's streaming live from his iPhone. Good man. Um, what that, I, I, want, I, want, I want services on my phone. And that's coming. We're getting there. But let me just put it uh, in, in context here. The UK... Um, and America, whatever you see in mobile, just forget about it for the minute. It's all happening in China. It's all happening in India. Those are the first people who are hitting what they are perceiving is the Internet, but that's the, their first experience of the Internet is through their handset, through their device. Uh, let's put it in context. There are 60 million, roughly 60 million, 102% penetration in the UK of mobile handsets. We've all got at least two of them. Uh, in India, there are 306 million users 
uh, mobile phone users. Now, these are, again, shit handset users at the moment. They just send texts and call. Um, 2010, 612 million of them. Again, more context, there are 48 million credit card holders in India. 48 million people have a credit card in India. 306 million of them have a handset that has a credit arrangement. Hmm. 612 million of them shortly. Uh, so where, where I think we're going um, is it's internet-style services on a connect, an Uber-connected device. I'll stop talking about that. So, Simon, so it, you said earlier you, you're really passionate about social media. I'll, I'll get over to the other side of the table in a second. So it... it it, the phone, I mean, my, you asked my mom what a phone's for. She says it's for making phone calls. It's for social media. It's what she, would, you know, she calls social media. This is social media, talking on the phone. So, you know, we've talked a bit about commerce and about browsing. What, what about the social part of the, of the device? I think, well, the, the, the services idea is exactly, it's, it's being social. I think in terms of using the, or getting clients to use the social web, either, to be honest, either on a you know, fixed-line terminal or on a handset is, is still a big challenge. And I, I, kind of, I didn't want to be too pessimistic tonight, but I, I did kind of come in thinking about the future and, and, and the way PR or marketing communications is going. Um, and it's, it's still, honestly, and maybe I'm not, I'm not speaking out of turn here, but there's PR people in the audience, it's still a real struggle to get clients to understand yeah. using any kind of social tool on the internet. And, you know, I'm not going to say my clients, are, my, my clients are fantastic. But... Um, and, Oh, the, the industry, the, what, the PR, in, the PR industry? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lay into the PR industry because I'm obviously in the PR industry, but I did, I did have something written down here that, you know, we, the PR Week of the Week was saying 2009, my tip for 2009, editor's tip is, is digital. And I think what I've written down here is that it's still digital. And, you know, the, the point is digital isn't necessarily a separate strand of our communications. You know, it's, it's there. It's right at the core of what we do if we think about, you know, social communications. So the, the challenge for me is... It's not about making a change to dealing with mobile as a channel or dealing with blogs as a channel. It's about changing the culture within which we communicate. And I think until the PR industry wakes up to that or understands that, we're still going to get these kind of digital essays being kind of trotted out by PR Week, you know, where in which you, say, you see people talking about creating blogs or you know, using... It's, it's very channel-specific. It's very, it's very tool-specific rather than thinking about how, to, how do we communicate in a much broader sense using the Internet. That's good. Hey, Jamie, so what do you think? Are there, are there two internets, or is there one internet with lots of devices accessing it? I mean, you know, is the mobile web or M-Web or whatever we're calling it this week, are these two different things, or is this a single thing? Now or 2013? That's a good question. <laughs> okay, so 2013. Um, I think there's going to be multiple devices, one hub. Um, for example, we're already seeing it with, um, you know, Mac Mini. You can surf the internet, you can watch TV, you can download films, and same with Xbox, you know, you can now download films. Um, we're seeing it with Amazon who are now offering storage um, facilities to users and Google are following suit. I think that in 2013, our online lives will be in one central hub. I want all my documents there, I want my contacts there, uh, my downloads, my music. But if I'm coming to an event like this, I want to be able to access it via my mobile device. If I'm going on a long train journey, then I want to access it via my laptop, via my computer. So um, I, I think that there will be one hub, but how you access that through multiple devices will be different. Hmm. Neville, what do you think? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a glass-half-full kind of person hmm. by nature, so I see uh, amazing things between now and 2013. But uh, the caution I have, and indeed the hat I wear or the angle I tend to look at is very much from a business point of view, not the consumer. I look at the effect this has on organizations, the effect it has on structures, the disruption that's already happening in many organizations as they try to grapple 
you know, even simple stuff like blogs, podcasts, uh, you know, Twitter, Yammer, all this kind of stuff going on. Uh, actually, what, what Jamie said is actually really interesting because I agree with that. I, I think you're going to have a proliferation of means uh, to be able to access information, but the, the stumbling block or the hurdle we've got still to overcome, in my opinion, is what I, I kind of describe as the infrastructure. Uh, I had an experience just now, in fact, trying to connect you know, this iPhone uh, this Nokia even can't, I can't get any connection. That's a Vodafone. This iPhone's O2. Uh, it, it finds BT Open Zone, and of course O2's got to deal with that. Yet it wants to know my phone number. Why can't it find it automatically? Mm. Little things like that, and that that speaks absolutely to what Jamie mentioned about you know you, you're in your office or you're in your home. You've got your device. You're out and about. You've got a different device to access information. You just want it to work, and the. Uh, the desires of people to do these things are increasing. So there's a crunch on the limitations as we currently have it. Uh, is there going to be like a magic bullet that suddenly next week it's all going to work? No. But I, what I think the, the obstacle is, as I mentioned the word infrastructure, by that I mean typically, as I see it, particularly with mobile, uh, it's the proprietary ways in which the operators behave. Pricing. Um, the artificialness of the barriers that exist that prevent these things happening. And I don't know what the tipping point is that's suddenly going to tip this stuff over. Is it going to be regulatory issues such as the European Commission is trying to do with roaming costs? Is it going to be that? That's going to help, I'm sure. Uh, so that's got to be resolved somehow before you then have the, the gates are going to be open uh, for the innovation to happen. Devices like we're seeing today, I think you and you mentioned the Nokia N97 piece of crap is what I've been hearing on Twitter mostly. And I'm a Nokia fanboy, I have to tell you. I mean, the N95 GB, that's the gadget to have. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're going to see devices we, we actually don't know what they look like yet in a year's time, I reckon. So um, trying to predict things is, is interesting, um, but it's going to be an exciting time. So interesting. So a, a theme I heard that I want to I sort of pick up for a minute, which is uh, I was at a conference last week, and I heard a, a chat from Ofcom whose name I won't mention so I can you know, sell them out down the river. Uh, actually, I, what, I, what he had to say I really agree with, which is uh, – and there was a chat for three on the panel with them, and they were having a conversation about how the carriers have been moving from a place of – pay per charge or transactional billing to a world of all-you-can-eat subscription model. And so what I'd like to do is put that to you is, 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 is it, 2013, am I paying a subscription fee or a license fee even? Or, uh, or, or is it every, I'm paying for every little bit of content or every little thing I'm consuming? What's it look like? A very interesting question because right now, if you're, you're, if you're a Vodafone user and you call someone out of package um, and you're, you're paying monthly, uh, you'll pay 35 pence a minute for that call uh, if you're calling someone on a different network. Uh, I mean, it, a few more pence and you could be calling Luscious Linda. You know, it's, it's really ridiculous how it is today. Um, here, here's a quote from an unnamed network. This is from a very senior chap at a network in the UK. Um, this was a couple of months ago. I said, so what's next? What's coming soon? Uh, he said, well, uh, frankly, do not repeat his name uh, or the company. Uh, five billion in voice revenue. We don't know where we're going to be next year. Okay, so they are panicking, absolutely panicking, because the market is changing very fast, and three are doing their best to nail everybody and really pull the market um, down and open. Um, I think they will do their best to claw and, and hold on to your monthly subscriptions as much as possible. Have you seen the 24-month contract? Have you seen the fact that, that you now walk in and you say, oh, I'd like a new N97? 
36-month contract, sir. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it'll be £50. Pounds, and most people don't like paying for it. So you'll, you'll sign up to a, a three-year. And you know, that's we're getting near to 2013. So I think they'll do their absolute best because they, they fiscally have to. There's a lot of infrastructure costs for them. Um, they, the, the mistake for them is to say, oh, it's five quid, all you can eat. But that's also an enabler for them. Uh, it's a big dilemma for them when they said, oh, you, you can, it's all you can eat, sort of. Uh, but now they've, they've said, well, um, how do we get more money from you? Hmm. And that's a problem. Interesting. It reminds me of the, uh, and I am showing my gray hair here, is uh, I remember the debates with my friends from AOL and CompuServe who told me there was no way they could move to an all-you-can-eat model because they'd never make it done. Um, so actually, uh, I'm going to pick on the BT chap here, and, and this probably is slightly out of your, out of your remit, but I'm curious. It, does BT and the, and the fixed line carriers, do you view mobile, sort of mobile access, as a, as a key driver of competitive access to the network? I mean, you know, so right now, if you want broadband, eventually it goes through a BT pipe. Is that, is that something that's on your radar, something you're thinking about in terms of you know, the mobile carriers or 4G or, or any other sort of you know, non-fixed wire connections? Yeah, certainly we, we have a... If I talk within my remit, just for a second, um, we have a whole research uh, theme associated with mobility, but you wouldn't necessarily think BT mobile provider. Um, we, do, we do do MVNO. But it's extremely important, and it's extremely important to see how people's... Li- I, I go back to the customer. I go back to how people want to live, how people want to use these services that, that were talked about just now. You, know, you don't want to have to think about when you're at home and when you're out and about. That's one of the reasons why... Um, since you asked about a BT thing, I wasn't going to plug it too much, but um, the, the, the sort of BT broadband anywhere thing came because we want people to be able to take the services with them. Now, the, there will be early versions of this that, that, that are that transform into something better, but that is what people want. They want the seamlessness of being able to go wherever they are, whether they're at home or whatever, get the best deal and, and have that access. And I think one of the... One of the I mean, I have these three C's that I call of, of, of devices, since we've talked a lot about devices. The first is cooperation, because they need to work better together than they do at the moment. You know, you buy one thing, you get it home, it doesn't work with anything else you've got. Uh, and that needs to change, and, and it will change. And the device manufacturers that I talk to are telling me, whereas three years ago they were saying, oh, no, it's, um, you know, we want to keep it proprietary and we want, to, we, we want to keep all our stuff working together but not with anybody else's. They're now telling me, we can't afford to be in the game where our stuff doesn't work with anybody else's. So that, that, is, that is changing, and, and that will happen, I think. But slowly, don't expect miracles o- overnight. Um, the second C is clarification. It's making things easy, because one of my mantras is, if you make things easy for people, they'll do it. Okay. Uh, another BT example, since you asked. Um, you know, the Go Messenger thing on the PSP. How many people here have got a PlayStation Portable? Not very many. Okay, well, one, one zoning up over there. Um, you know, for, for those users that do gaming on a PSP, the Go Messenger thing has now added the broadband comms to that. So they, they take their PSP with them, and they can email, they can IM, they can do all these stuff that they did. But it wasn't provided by Sony on, on, on the PSP. It was provided by BT to, to go on there. That's a free download. That's, that's what people are now doing. And we look at the number of downloads and, and see that that's very popular. Jonathan, could, could I ask you just... Um, we, we talked about BT OpenZone. Mm-hmm. And could, could you give a perspective there? As in it's, it's really, really excruciatingly annoying for me when I see BT Open Zone is available, but I've got to type in my phone number that I can't remember <laughs> to qualify for it. Yes, actually, the, the, the not remembering 
your phone number is the most frustrating thing because people don't <laughs> remember their phone number. They don't remember any phone numbers. Like in the future, they won't be able to remember how to, how to navigate from one place to another because the TomTom always does it for them and they, they didn't bother anymore. Uh, it's the same with remembering phone numbers. Your phone does it so you don't bother anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, you should have to put it in once. The design was that you put in your phone number once when you first get your phone, and it knows about you, and if all the systems work in the, in the back end, then it should always give you access to BT Open Zone because that, it knows your number, it knows that's associated with that phone, that SIM card, so you're authenticated. That's how it should work. Um, that's how it works most of the time for me. Um, so, yes, that, that, that's... Well, well, I, I just think that's really annoying. Mm. I just, I, because, you know, you were just... You know, I, I agree with you, but you were, you were talking about making it simple and easy. Yep. And that is... I understand technically why they have to do that, but really that's because some guy somewhere can't be arsed. Right, because right. you can or, make that... Or you can it make could that be the work. handset of the carrier. I mean, you know... There's you a, can make the, it work automatically. You right. can make that work automatically. Uh, yeah, okay, listen. It, it, remember, we're supposed to be in 2013. So, actually, Jamie... <laughs> 2013, what's your biggest digital annoyance? Well, Joe, we're already starting to see it now, um, and yeah. it's called the, um, the H relationship tag. If, if Neville and I are connected on Facebook, yeah. and then I move over to Twitter, and then Neville comes over to Twitter, I want, I want them to tell me, I want them to say, right, you're connected here on Facebook, so here we go, you know, yeah. would you like to move, rather than would you like to put your Gmail address in and move your contacts, you know who I am, you have the data, and we can do it now, and we're not doing it now. Why? I don't know, but we should be doing it. Simon, what do you think about that? Well, open ID, so open social, you know, is that a real reality in 2013? Is it transparent? That's a good question. I, I must admit, I don't know an awful lot about open ID, so I'm not going to answer specifically. Um, but it's definitely the way to go. I think the problem is that if we kind of get stuck into business models whereby everybody wants to be the next Facebook, everybody wants to be the next Twitter, then it's going to be well, potentially going to be a risk of, of kind of creating more silos rather than opening things up. Where does the grand swell come from in order to open things up? Uh, where's the impetus going to come from? And the, I think this is going to be a kind of a perennial question within this debate. Where's the impetus going to come from in order to change the behaviour of providers or to change the behaviour or change the models of behaviour? Um, I don't know. I haven't got the answer. I don't know whether anyone does. Neville, what do you think? Uh, it, it, portable device, ID card, uh, do you see any synergies here? What, sort of, what's, what's your thought on this? Uh, yeah, I, I think that um, OpenID, all these are devices for proving your identity, authenticating who you are uh, so that other people can trust you. And I think we've got elements of this happening. It's just that, you know, Jamie mentioned a point there, it's too complicated. Is it going to be the case that in 2013 all these things will have gone away by then? I would bloody well hope so. Uh, so that you can do something that whatever social network you're on just happens to be a place you hang out with people and then you go to another one, it's you, the same you. The same applies in virtual worlds like Second Life, for instance, where you, you've got your avatar, your presence, uh, your representation that you, you want to go to another uh, such place. You can't do that now without signing up and different you know, creations. The same with all these networks. These walled gardens still exist. But I think, yeah, I mean, I've not studied the tech aspect of it in depth, but I think the technologies are there that enable these transparencies to happen. Why haven't they happened then? Could it be that maybe the, the, the uh, desires as, as expressed in some kind of groundswell hasn't happened yet, i.e. that tipping point hasn't happened yet? Is it a cost thing? Uh, is it a tech thing? I, I'm not sure. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, so will it happen by 2013? As I said, it bloody well better have. Jonathan? Yeah, it just reminded me of something because I don't think it is a tech thing. I, I really don't. I, I mean, there are technical things coming along that will help, but I, that's not the problem. I, I just tell you a story about when I was over in the States a couple of weeks ago. 
and we were talking about how to make these devices easier for people. And we had different people there from different companies who were involved in, in, in different aspects, whether it be the system or the device or the hardware or the software or the apps. And one of the guys presented what they do to make things usable, you know, their human usability guide, guidelines. And we all sat through this. And actually, the problem wasn't that his guidelines for making it usable weren't any good. It wasn't that anybody else's guidelines weren't any good. The problem was that there's so many organisations involved in producing a device nowadays <laughs> that they have to work together. And this working together doesn't actually happen most of the time. I mean, again, to give a BT example, so, you know, um, you know, we had this phrase called open innovation, and I think it really works because at least it's starting to. It's new even for us, but it's, it, we're finding real benefits because innovation used to be something that companies did in their research departments. Right? It used to be something that they did in-house, that they kept the shutters down over. Right? What we need is, is more open innovation where you work with partners where you actually share your IPR in controlled ways, where you actually work with people. We've got a whole customer engagement program. I was seconded for three months over the summer. I didn't get a summer holiday with um, one of our customers who wanted to do a particular work, and, and I was put in their organisation to help them understand what research we've done that would solve one of their problems. Now, that's very unusual to share research at that level, and I think the same thing happens with, with these discussions that Neville was talking about. You know, We need... Uh, that cooperation at a business level. So it's not a tech thing. It's actually getting companies to work together uh, and, and to get that collaboration. And we all talk about collaboration tools, you know, and social tools that, that we use in consumer space. Actually, in the business space, people are just not used to the culture of working across organisational boundaries at the moment. And the more we can facilitate that with some of the technology before 2013, I think that will open up possibilities for us getting better I think with the stuff. I, I, I totally agree. And it's that, kind of, it's that dilemma in terms of companies that get it and those, even those that don't by 2013 hopefully will be in this position will want to be doing openness, you know, open research, collaboration. But... The challenge is, is it going to be collaboration and openness from a top-down perspective? Or is it going to be kind of that groundswell again? Is it going to be collaboration and openness from the bottom-up? Because if it's bottom-up, it tends to be led by what works for you know, individuals, what works for consumers, rather than companies saying, we really must collaborate and you know, we've got these regulatory guidelines to follow. So by 2013, will we see less regulation? I mean, I, I would love to say yes, but I've got a, a horrible feeling that, that it depends how the next 12, you know, 24 months pan out, there may well be more regulation. So actually, I'm going to jump in there and just say that the, as an American and sitting in a country that has five different mobile standards and therefore no interoperability between mobile networks, that top-down regulation actually has some major benefits. You know, the, the, the adoption of GSM transformed Europe in the mobile world in a way that didn't happen in America and probably won't happen for a very long time because it just, you know, you buy a handset and you can't imagine the frustration of driving from, you know, region to region, having it work and then not work and then sort of work and then you get dropped because you're on a low-priority cell. And it, it's, it, it's one of those things where having a mandated standard and then backing off and letting the market drive things from there is actually a very beneficial thing. Let me, I actually want to jump to another conversation now, which is... Um, at Razorfish, we had, I don't know if anyone here ever worked at Razorfish. If, if you're here, you can back me up on this. We um, built a Coke machine in our office in New York that allowed you to buy a Coca-Cola with your phone via SMS. And we did this in 1998. It cost £150,000, yes, $300,000. Um, each Coke we calculated ran us another $1,000 or so. So, you know, you could only do it with a client. <laughs> but what was interesting is, so we did this. In you know, 1998, yet here it is, 2008, and I still can't buy a phone. I still can't buy a Coke with my phone, cell phone. 
So mobile commerce, you know, the idea of mobile commerce, 2013, are we buying things with our phone or are we still carrying around credit cards? Uh, yes, oh, absolutely. Um, the, there's, a couple, there's a company I'm working with right now. Um, they're the largest credit card processor on the planet. And um, when you are in a shop somewhere and uh, it goes decline, decline, when you have money in your account, decline, decline, it's this company that, um, that's running the, the back end there. And they, um, they are moving extremely fast to try and get um, uh, into this mobile game. Because just as I said, um, you know, these 600-odd million Indians that are about to have a credit relationship via their handset. They're going to want to spend by it. So I'm ignoring the UK because in, I mean, India and China, that's, that's where the, all, all the innovation is going to be. Uh, what we'll be doing, I think, I, I, I want to see the Oyster-style thing. Um, uh, a few uh, examples that people are talking about right now is because it is so difficult getting these handset manufacturers to talk to each other in standards, etc., etc., you can have a little sticker, a little RFID tag in the back of your phone, or stuck in the back of your phone, uh, that you can just swipe. Uh, that, that's a quick fix that's being discussed. But by 2013, I would hope that we're able to do this. Uh, there's a service right now that works with some vending machines. I can't, I, the name escapes me. When you walk up, you just dial it. It drop dials you, um, and uh, you, can, you can buy uh, via your, your, your phone. Uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yes, I mean... <clears throat> The whole thing about near-field uh, near near field comms in phones, I think the high-end smartphones by the end of 2010 will, will, will have near-field comms in, so that will enable from a technology perspective. The reason that people are already doing this with vending machines in Japan is because the mobile operator, the main mobile operator in Japan is also has a very strong commercial relationship with a bank in Japan. <laughs> And so it's obvious. And the vending machines, it? actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's 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 really it's really obvious there why the Japanese are already doing what you're talking about. The other thing I think is is, is it's interesting to look at different ge uh, geographies because in Africa, for example, we don't think of Africa as being innovative, but they're using mobile phones for money, and they're using it without having gone through the stages that we've gone through with mobile phones, and they're doing it because they don't they don't have a trusted money source. You know, there are states in Africa where you don't know you can't put money in a bank when you earn it because you don't know whether it's going to be there again tomorrow. So, <laughs> yes, in the re in recent times, perhaps, but well it's never been there. Uh, yeah, very perceptive, but it, it, but it's never been there uh, in these states, and and so people pay for things with 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 phone credit because that is the thing that they value, that, that has some value, and that, that, that they can hold on the SIM card, and, and, it, and it, uh, it works for them. So, you know, there's, there's a, a, an enormous growth in this monetary payment by mobile phones in, 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 a, in, a, in a continent that you wouldn't think, you know, you still think of as Bob Geldof. You, you, don't, you don't actually think about it being leaps ahead of us, and, and so it, it does pay to look around the world. And I think just on that point, I think we were at the same talk, Innovation Edge, earlier on this year, but... Um, uh, Bob Geldof was telling a story of how it's, it's not just the technology that is there now, it's fundamentally changing people's lives. Um, and, you know, a story that I recall he told was um, of, a, of a woman in Tanzania who cannot, get, you know, buy, go and buy fresh meat. It takes her like six, seven hours to walk to her butcher. Um, by the time she gets there, there, there's nothing left. And now it's fundamentally changing people's lives because now they can send a text message to their butcher, I am coming today, please send, you know, save me some meat for this week. And it's fundamentally changing people's lives at the moment in a way that we, you know, we wouldn't understand. Um, so I think you know, the, the way technology is being used at the moment is really, really interesting, really interesting. You know, actually, on the third world theme, which I think is an interesting one to, to pick up for a minute, so uh, the BBC, during the Angolan elections, 
the amount of traffic from Angola to the mobile browser side was, was just a phenomenal amount of traffic. I was actually, we at first thought it was a bug. <laughs> and, and what we actually realized is that the, these people, it was the most trusted source of information about their election was the BBC web, mobile website on their, you know, on their rubbish Nokia phones, as you would put it. So, uh, and interesting, though, it, it, taking a step back, so will the third world... Do we think the third world is going to pass the first world? I mean, you know, America, frankly, on, in the mobile world, is ages behind Europe in terms of what the devices can do, how fast they can access the information access. Is the third world going to be more mobily connected and more distributed with its devices and networks than we are because they don't have that legacy copper infrastructure? Um, I, I think I, I don't see it surpassing. Uh, if we use labels like third world, first world, I don't see it happening like that because the needs are different. Uh, but I could see that those needs then are driving the the business opportunity for the companies and businesses that make the hardware and, and build the infrastructure because there's a business opportunity. So, you know, um, what we've just been talking about on, on using your mobile device to make payments. I mean, what's the word to describe? Micropayments or whatever I've heard that? India is happening in India, not through mobile technology necessarily. But imagine if then that somebody sees an opportunity to capitalize on that as a business. There's your business opportunity. You are also laying the framework and building the foundation for, you know, in five, ten years' time when this will then become more normal. So that adds an accelerant uh, to, uh, to the, the actual infrastructure to be developed in ways that aren't apparent here in the first world. And that will probably migrate over here. So you've got things, you know, just taking it back to developed world a bit, you've got things, for instance, that you could do right now if you're in Silicon Valley that you can't do anyplace else. Uh, you can do things like, you know, maps. Uh, uh, you've got the voice commands and all this stuff to find your restaurant, and it gives you all sorts of choices. You know, you read about this stuff, you try and do it here, and it doesn't work. You've got barcode scanning. You've got all this stuff. You're in a supermarket. You pick up a product, and, and you scan it with your mobile phone, and immediately it gives you product reviews, recommendations, all that. That's exactly the kind of stuff you want. It's not rolled out yet. So, you know, all these things are still to come, and it, it requires lots of things to make it happen. So in, in this case, we're talking about, of, okay, things going on in other markets that aren't apparent here. I think uh, they're all going to be driving each other, depending on what the, the need is that would be met uh, in, in the society and the business need that would be met. They've, they've got to coincide, I think. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, step in there with another uh, story from Africa, um, and that is yeah, our handsets right now aren't really directly connected to um, our well-being. Uh, but if you take, for example, a farmer in the middle of nowhere um, and who has to travel days or you know, a day to, uh, to take his crops to market, uh, what he can do now with his phone is check the price. Okay, it absolutely business, life critical to this chap. Previously, he took a chance and he went to market. Now what he can do is he can just text and say, how much is wheat selling for? And if it's not selling for very good uh, at that particular day, he might choose to take it to market tomorrow. That kind of thing is absolutely critical to him. Okay, that's a business life-saving tool. For us, these are entertainment devices, more or less. So uh, that is one of my favorite stories from Africa. Let me actually make this a little interactive. How many people here have no fixed line home phone, but only a mobile phone. By the way, I have to raise my hand because that doesn't count. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm talking about a, a, a good old in America as we call it, Ma Bell telephone plugged into a you know versus only a mobile phone. So I'll raise my hand because actually, although I have I have Virgin cable, I have no BT line. Sorry. Interesting. 
So I did this the other day at a, a, a big swanky dinner in Switzerland with a bunch of CEOs, and 80% of the room raised their hand, which was fascinating because this wasn't the, I wasn't expecting that. Um, but they were all in Switzerland, and they all said the same thing, which is they had a house up in the mountains, and they all had houses down wherever they lived, and a fixed line was actually useless to them because they wanted people to be able to reach them, and they were only at each place half the time and, and having two different numbers and tracking all that, that, that slowly but surely they were just moving to having one number, which was their mobile number. Um, and many of them were actually frustrated by the fact that they still had to have Internet via a fixed line when they wanted everything to be mobile and attached to that same account. Um, does anyone have any questions? We're doing a lot of talking up here. Uh, big hand right there. Look at that. Strong. Right to the front. Um, it's Mark Rock from Best Before Media. Uh, I'm just quite amazed that after so long, uh, the word Google has not been mentioned by anyone. You know, here's, if we had thought five years ago that uh, a search company would be uh, launching its own mobile phone uh, device, I would have thought... Um, I would have thought Google would be a key part of anyone's uh, forward-looking thinking, and I'd quite like to know what you thought. Hmm. All right, so the question I think is, if I can paraphrase... Why haven't any of us talked about Google in 2012? Have they gone out of business? Is uh, Eric and Sergey's boat sank? What's going on? Yeah. Well, from my point of view, um, we probably haven't arrived at the point in the discussion where naturally, ding, Google name pops up. But it probably more represents that that's not the focus of what we're talking about right now. We're still looking at what? The society of big picture issues as opposed to the, the specific things people need with search. It's more than search, though. So maybe this is still to come, and maybe you have now catalyzed the topic. But that's the only thing I can think of. It's not an avoidance thing. It hasn't come up yet in a natural way in the conversation. That's what it seems to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, true. I, you know, I played with an Android phone uh, recently before it was launched. Absolutely gorgeous device. But what, what else can I say about it other than have a discussion about mobile phone device? I don't see it as relevant yet. Well, the fact that they created an open system, yeah. open software yeah. that allowed anyone I knew where this was going. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a really interesting point. That it, two people have immediately said the openness bit doesn't interest them. It doesn't interest my mum either. It doesn't interest an awful lot of people in my family. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We understand that, but the man in the street doesn't. Can, can, I, can I talk about the man in the street for a minute? Um, re- related to that, uh, I'm going to talk about the iPhone just because this is a real life example. Uh, there's a chap uh, a, little, a little while ago, um, he really into stars, and he created an application called Star Map. Uh, it works for the iPhone with the, the, uh, the GPS. You stand outside uh, in the dark and you can see stars. It, it, on, on the device, it tells you what stars you can see. Uh, he thought it was a really cool idea. Uh, nine quid, nine euro, nine dollars. Um, he's, uh, in over two and a half months, he sold uh, $336,000 worth. Uh, he's bought his own house. Um, that's, that's now a $1.2, $1.5 million business. Um, so it, when you look at what we're Android, what Android can do is you now have the long tail... Uh, for those of you that are fans of the, the, the viewpoint, is beginning to work. With, 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 if you've got Android, it's open. That means that um, I can start developing for it. I cannot develop for Nokia. It's very, very difficult. There is no distribution. It's extremely difficult to do that. With an iPhone, with Android, that's really going to change things massively. So by 2013, I hope we're, wa- we're all walking about with some basic devices that are similar, similar in concept, but what we do to them and what we have running in them uh, will be our preference. Right now, Nokia and LG and Samsung, they tell you what you have in your, your phone. Um, and what's really exciting is the change that's coming. 
Hmm. So actually, I'm going to jump on this for just a minute and frame this discussion because I'm, I'm worried we're going to go in three different directions simultaneously. So we seem to be two themes. One is open source, and one of them is about handsets and I would argue probably carriers as well and sort of the, the walled garden. And what I'd like to do actually is take it to the open source thing first because I think that's sort of an interesting discussion to have and then come back to the other one if that's okay. Could I just throw in a two euro cents worth of opinion? I'm using it <laughs> deliberately that way. I, I don't buy this argument about open source change in the world and all that kind of stuff. So you and your point about by 2013, your point about what you can achieve with it, I don't see anybody I know, even who people I describe as real geeks in companies who are getting excited about that at all. I don't know any business who I've worked with, who I talk to, are thinking, yeah, the things are going to change now because of open source or because of Google Android. They're oblivious to this. So it's a bit like, you know, I'm as, I'm as techie as these guys are, and I have an interest in this stuff, yet this is not the thing that's jangling people's chains outside the tech community. That, that's what I see. In which case, if I go and talk to a company I talk to about the changes that are coming and it's going to affect their organization, people's behaviors, all this kind of stuff, the last thing I'm going to mention to the CFO of that company uh, or the VP of communications, even the CEO for that matter, is stuff to do with open source. They just don't get it at all and they're not interested. Now, that's not to dismiss it. That's not what I'm saying. But that's not a major thing, in my opinion. Actually, if I can speak to that just briefly, my sense is at the BBC, for instance, that open source, not open source, actually, it, it doesn't, it has no effect on the, on the use decision, right? So I think I, if I can take it just a step further, it's not, it's not a negative or a positive. It, it's neither. It's sort of, oh, okay, good. You yeah. know. Oh, oh, that means it costs a little less. It's probably the strongest opinion it might evoke, if any. And, and largely, it probably does cost something because you have to pay someone to modify it or you may have to pay a license fee or something. So, but let, let's circle this back, right? The openness of the platform, right? So let's move the discussion a little bit. You said about the sky with star map, which actually, by the way, I have on my phone. It's pretty cool. Um, it is the openness of access for anyone to be able to develop an application, whether that application matches up other data or applications from other people or is something brand new, unique, and bespoke. Is that important? Do we think that's an important thing? And I'll get to you in just a second. Uh, I'll just j jump in quickly and say, yeah, I, I, absolutely, I think it is, because we, we come back to the kind of the issue of groundswell, when a thing is going to change. And sure, there might be a, you know, a tiny proportion of, of kind of geeks, if you like, mashing things up, creating new cool content or apps or just whatever, or you know, software, for example. But the point is that as that then kind of grows and people pass it on to their friends and family and their friends and family, like you know, my mum or my sister say, oh, that's really cool. And, I see, and they, they might not know that it's been, it's been built on Google Maps or open software or whatever. The point is they, they find a use for it. They realize it can actually enhance their life, enhance the way that they do things, you know, change the way that they, they, they buy things and come back to your service point. They then start to get a, you know, a feel for this kind of stuff. And as there's an impetus for more personalized creative content, then there's a greater impetus then for people to carry on developing it. And that way, that's almost your bottom-up kind of change in, in, in you know, causing businesses from a top-down perspective to, to decide they need to get, get a piece of this. Even if they make you know, a third of their business open source or put some more money into researching open source you know, software, it's, it's still kind of diversifying what they do, which is giving us more choice as a consumer. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I think I'd agree that you know, there is going to become slightly more choice, but when you look at the great, you know, great tools that we've had over the last couple of years, like Twitter and Dig and Upcoming, etc., we don't have these because they're open source. We have these because there's friends who are like-minded who got together and collaborated to develop these tools because it was what they wanted to do. I don't necessarily think that 
if you release code and make it open source, you're going to get really wonderful things from it. Because I think this natural collaboration is already happening. Hmm. Sorry, we, have, we have a couple of questions for the audience, so let's finish this and then we'll. I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just come back and say no. I mean, I, I do agree, but I'm just saying that. that um, I was going to say, it's, it's about a use value. It could be open source, but it doesn't have to be open source. But if it's useful, then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you've been very patient. Thank you. You were talking a little earlier, really, about. I'm, I'm t- moving away from the open source issue, but back really to what you were talking about, about interoperability and openness in that way that. Uh, I think one of you mentioned not wanting to have to say, I want to take my stuff from Facebook to Twitter to what... You just want to be recognised. One word no one, no one has mentioned at all, I don't think, yet, like no one had mentioned Google, is privacy. Hmm. Does anybody actually care about privacy? Do people really... Fundamentally, when it comes down to it, we all say... You know, or lots of people say, oh, we don't want ID cards, we don't want people knowing what we're doing, that kind of thing. But really, does anybody actually care? I'm, I'm glad you've mentioned that, actually. I'm going <laughs> to grab the microphone and pick on that one. Um, it's a really, really valid point, privacy. And if I'm going to be honest, I think that you know, your stance on privacy changes within two generations. The generation who are you know, uh, coming up right now, they've lived with the technology we've got now we are having to rewire our brains in order to get our head round. And, you know, we, I still shred all my bank statements, you know, because we're so scared of sharing data. But, you know, I, I think and, until we actually share this data, then we're not going to get a lot of the tools that we should have. And another, another point on the back of primacy, uh, privacy, if we're talking about that, we also need to talk about regulation. Because I honestly think, you know, we're talking about what's going to happen in 2013... We have situations now where the record labels are trying to make ISPs responsible for for piracy. You know, I think that's quite ludicrous. And digital is the only medium right now that isn't regulated by the government. You know, I I think that the privacy issue is a very, very good one, but I think it's also part of a wider conversation in terms of, you know, in 2013, will the internet be regulated? So I'd like to, if I, if I can, I'm going to put a pin in the regulatory bullet, only because I want to come back to it. I think it's a really good topic. But I want to talk about privacy. Just do it, Does privacy exist anymore? Does any, is that a fantasy? I mean, uh, I have my nephew who's 19, who I use in every panel, describes privacy as something that Uncle Richard thinks about a lot and doesn't really exist. It's literally, he just said, you know, Uncle Richard, it doesn't exist. You're some digital guru, but you should know better than anyone. There is no such thing as privacy. They know everything about you, and they means everyone from his parents to, uh, you know, Bank of America or President Bush. But is privacy, does it exist? I think the definition of the word has shifted, it's changed. A bit like our definition of the word friend has changed since Facebook came around, basically. You know, who's got 600 friends? Your definition's shifted. So privacy, I think, has shifted in terms of, you know, what each one of us may be different. But broadly speaking, we are quite comfortable disclosing information without having a faintest clue where it goes, who looks at it, what people do with it. Uh, And we're blissfully kind of comfortable with that. But there is implicit trust, which is probably misplaced uh, in authority figures to look after our data. I mean, this government in this country, for example, has got the most bloody awful record on the planet of looking after people's data. You know, CDs lost on trains or whatever and flash drives and all this kind of stuff. So the, 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 the safeguards aren't in place yet. But do we really care... If, if we truly did in a society, we'd have, we'd have had an election by now and someone else would have won it. 
Yeah, I just want to pick up on the uh, on, on the disc left on trains uh, thing because <laughs> I, I have a little story about when I went to a conference on the east coast of the states recently, and and you know you, you get these badges normally when you go to a conference, a bit of plastic with your name and your affiliation printed on. <coughs> I went over there, and here's your active badge, sir. So I put it on. Didn't know what an active badge was. I was standing there talking to a guy uh, amongst 150 others in the in, in the foyer as you do before you go in, and um, all of a sudden his badge lit up. And across it scrolled a message saying, you're wanted in the auditorium, Jonathan, because I was doing a talk as usual. And I got the message, and it came on his badge, not on my badge, not on the badge of the 150 people that were standing around in the foyer, the guy who I was standing opposite. So the badges were tracking me and, and, and who I was talking to. And when I got back, incidentally, you know you get all those business cards, and you don't know where to put them in a shoebox or scan them in or put them in the bin or whatever. You can't remember who gave you what. When I got back from that conference, there was a list on a private web page for me of all the people I'd spoken to, and it was ordered by the people I found most interesting at the top. And it was damn right, you know, which was really good. Now, I gave some information away. The point of that story is I gave some information away when I signed up for the conference to have this experimental active badge that was going to track everywhere I went, how long I spent with who, how many times I spoke to them, as well as all the stuff when you register with the conference about what your interests are, and so they, they did some mashing around with that to, to work out who was most interesting. But the point is, I gave some information away, and I got something back. And I saw the value of that. And going back to the discs on trains, people worry about that. You know, some people worry about that when they go to bed at night. They don't, those same people don't worry about what Tesco know about them, or Sainsbury's, with their loyalty card. And actually, Tesco probably know more about me than any other organisation. And they, if they, what they don't know, they can infer from the data they do have, and they're very good at it. And, and I don't blame them. But I don't worry about that, and most people don't. And the reason is, or partially the reason is, we believe, is because people perceive a benefit. They perceive a benefit of having that loyalty card, giving that information away, and therefore getting something back. And, and it might be a discount card, it might be points, it might be <coughs> having your shopping delivered or whatever. For me, it's finding that packet of biscuits that I once bought and can't remember what they are because my memory's so bad these days, I can't remember one. But, you know, it keeps a list of everything I've ever bought. I don't care. If somebody perceives a benefit, then the privacy thing, I think, changes in people's minds. And it is a question of state of mind. And, and yes, we will get more used to it, I think. As you say, there's a generation thing there. But fundamentally, people want something back for the, for the thing that they give. And, and we found that time and time again when we've run uh, uh, tests. Uh, I was going to kind of make that point in terms of, to add to Neville's idea of the definition of privacy changing. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very personal definition of privacy. Again, I mean, I'm kind of echoing John's point, but it's, you know, if, if you can perceive a value from, from, from giving away information, then, then it's not that important. But I think privacy is an issue we should be worried about, because again, to kind of build Neville's point, people out there who have always exploited privacy or exploited loopholes in privacy laws now have a much greater opportunity to use it for, you know, for, for bad practice or whatever. But anyway, it is an issue, and I think it should be an issue we should be worried about, but not that much. So uh, I'll, I'll close this on a... a there was Mondo 2000. Does anyone remember that magazine? I'm really dating myself. This is like pre-Wired magazine, sort of slightly Mondo 2000. So they used to have a conference every year in Vegas, which really was more about them wanting to go to Vegas than actually having a useful utilitarian conference. Um, but they had this bucket in the entrance to it where you put your, like, Vons or your Safeway loyalty card, and you took someone else's. And it was actually was a great idea. <laughs> you know, so I, I dropped mine in there with, uh, you know, all its frozen pizzas and uh, non-alcoholic beer and took one out that probably had a bunch of products that I'd never consumed before. And it was this great hack because it, it was completely harmless. And yet, you know that that like, probably ruined several thousand people's, you know, profiles of purchasing power, which I thought was a wonderful practical joke. Um, you've been waiting very patiently.
Thank you. Uh, it's actually broadening out the, the kind of last conversation as it turns out. Um, it's my belief that technology happens or doesn't happen because of social drivers. Hmm. Um, and so over recent years, there's been increasing mistrust of established authorities. There's been an elision of our work and social lives. Um, there's been this idea of a necessity of being permanently connected. So by 2013, in five years, what new social drivers do you feel might emerge that might correct or change these sorts of um, hmm. trends? That's a good question. Who wants to tackle it? Uh, I, I've got a friend who spends 10% of her uh, monthly income on uh, mobile. Uh, and she's, uh, she texts all the time. That, that's how she stays connected. Text, 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 text. Uh, she doesn't have a, an unlimited text um, thing in her uh, mobile plan, which really annoys me. But she, so she pays 10 pence a message every day. That's how she's staying connected right now. Um, but by 2013, I wonder how it's going to change. Um, I mean, it's, it's fascinating watching how people are connecting via Facebook and wh- how they're staying on Facebook online throughout the day, uh, particularly over different handsets and different um, uh, signals. Um, one, one point on privacy. Uh, I don't mind if I've got control over it. I don't mind it on Facebook. If I make a mistake, I can press delete. Um, I, I like the fact that I can delete the, the stuff. For example, I have two Facebook accounts. I have my, my public uh, blogger account, and at the behest of my wife, I have a private account that doesn't have all that rubbish, she points out, um, about you know, what mobile phones come out and all that kind of stuff, because I stream my blog on, on, on the site. Um, so I, I, um, I made the, the, the big mistake of saying I am no longer married because I deleted her from, from my public account. <laughs> Right, because uh, I thought it's okay. I can press delete. I can press delete, you know, um, and I can delete that from the. But by the time I'd done that, people had already emailed me and said, "Goodness me, what's happened?" Was it because I was trying to then add her to my private? I think by 2013, I think the problem people are us. We're the ones that got the problem. Uh, if you look at the young children and uh, those connected uh, now and those becoming connected, um, they really don't view anything. Um, uh, as much of an issue, and I, I very much echo your um, your nineteen year old um, Nephew. nephews' uh, a viewpoint. Privacy is not really much of a problem for a lot of the young people that I speak to. And I speak to try, uh, a lot to try and uh, get my viewpoint. What, what do you think? Big, big interpersonal or societal trends? Well, I think it's a really great question. First of all, so thanks for asking that. Um, and I think there's two really important factors that we need to look at. Um, the first one is how people are going to be connected in 2013. You know, at the moment, um, they're not here, so they won't mind me saying, uh, you know, we've got a couple of grads in our office who are like, oh, I've reached 500 friends on Facebook, and, you know, <laughs> you haven't done that. And it's a really big competition, whereas, you know, moving forward and looking at how people are going to be, you know, sort of connected, we, we are, you know, people um, are developing interpersonal relationships because they're, they're like-minded. You know, at the moment, um, we, we're, our shared interest is... Um, we're connected by sort of geography rather than shared interest. Whereas moving forward, you know, I'm a member of, um, you know, mobile phone group and uh, digital strategy group and these sort of groups. And we're going to have multiple personalities online, but in smaller, smaller pods. It's not going to be about connecting, you know, with as many people as possible. These relationships are going to be really, really honed in. Um, and, and another point that you mentioned um, in terms of, sort of user behaviour... Um, 
I've been having a conversation with a lady called Helen Keenan, who some of you might know as Techno Kitten online. Um, and we've been discussing a theory called um, continuous part, um, partial attention, and which you know is starting to get talked about a lot more. And you know, at, at the moment, we're we're trying to teach ourselves how to. Well, we are multitask. Basically, I've got, I'm writing a strategy document. I shouldn't say it's my boss is in the audience. I'm writing a strategy document when I'm checking Twitter every two minutes and then checking my email and then checking my Facebook. And I do this all day. And I'm knackered when I finish work. But I'm training myself to try and do it. And the whole thing about um, continuous partial attention is I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss that one tweet that comes through saying, have you seen this? This has just happened. I need to pay attention constantly. And I, you know, I find it really hard. I'm over 30 years old, and I like to think that I'm quite tech-savvy, but you know, my, my well, seven-year-old nephew's more tech-savvy than me, to be perfectly honest. It's just a way of life for him. So I think there's two really interesting points in how we're going to teach ourselves to behave in these spaces, but also how our relationships and how our user behaviour is going to change within technology. Uh, and if I can just jump in there, kind of pick up on that, on that personality issue. I mean, I think it's, it's difficult to foretell, and maybe this is kind of for the realm of, of the psychologist or sociologist, but, I mean, online identity, I think, for me, is a big thing, because I know, just as, as kind of Jamie's talked about, constant, you know, partial attention. I, I do have... I do suffer from constant partial attention, but equally I know that each one of those partial attention spans is potentially a different... It sounds weird to kind of articulate this, but a different persona for me. So I know that when I'm dealing with some people on Twitter, it's, it's, how I, it's, it's different from how I deal with some ex-colleagues on you know, IM, for example. And it's totally different from how I'd send an email to my boss or some people within my team. And, okay, maybe that's a, you know, a fairly obvious point, but I think especially for younger people coming through where they've kind of known nothing but the internet in terms of you know, being able to produce and consume content and, and ideas what we're seeing is a potential for people to tap into, you know, different personas that we've always wanted to, and, you know, and some people have had the, the luxury to, but everybody now potentially has the, has, potentially has the potential, has the potential to, um, to, to, to explore different avenues of their life that they haven't been able to before. And from a business perspective and from a communications perspective, how do, you, how do you deal with that? Because we're so used to kind of dealing with segmented audiences. You know, this is 20,000 people who are one kind of pretty much one demographic interested in five key things. When in fact, the reality is they're not. They're all individual people. And, you know, how do you talk to individual people with multiple personalities who don't give you their attention the full all the time <laughs> in, you know, successfully? So, I don't know. I think dealing with that will be a big challenge over the next five years. I just want to make a real quick point on, on, on privacy in 2013. So, right now, see this chap here. He's, uh, you're, are you still streaming on, uh, on Quick? Right, so he's streaming live video of us talking away, and that's that's cool because unless you know him, you're not seeing me and my friends and my my. See what persona am I right now? It's not a problem today, but 2013 is going to be a real big problem when he's streaming because are you streaming directly to my boss and is my boss or my girlfriend or my wife's friend or so on? So are they are they are they getting a, a live notification of what I'm saying right now? Because you know how on Facebook you can tag a photo and say that is you and you go oh no 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 that's, that that was me but oh, God, delete right okay. What, what happens if this chap here has actually tagged that as you in public? And I go, yeah, yeah, but I didn't give you permit. Uh, well, it's live. It's live and it's gone. And it's up there and it's been copied multiple times. And I'm either screwed or I'm not. And I didn't want you to use that profile or you didn't know my profile. And I don't know. So right now we're okay. But see in 2013 when everyone is streaming in, in HD, that's going to be real fun. 
So I, I'm actually going to take this because there's a couple more hands being raising, but I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, which is I, I have, I'm on probably every single social network that I either know about or exist just for fun. Um, and really, I use two of them. So I use uh, technically three, okay? So Plaxo I use to maintain my address book and for no other purpose. So I could actually, I pay no attention to any of those people messaging me on there. So if you've been doing that, I don't know you're doing it. Um, I, use li- I use LinkedIn as my professional network. And if you look at my LinkedIn profile and you read it, you go, ah, oh, this guy's done a lot of stuff. He probably wears a suit all day. He's very boring. Uh, he's not for, you know, got, uh, he's got, I've got him on my box. And then you go to my Facebook, which actually is very hard to get into because I only let people to be on my Facebook group. You have to have broken bread with me at least twice. And I have to know your middle name. And I have to have met your spouse or your children, one or the other. Um, What's interesting is my Facebook profile will tell you I snowboard, I ride horses, I rock climb, I surf, I do all these things. And LinkedIn doesn't say any of those things. So I, I've segmented my world into these universes that have nothing to do with each other. And actually, what's interesting is when people cross over, and, and sometimes that's all right, you know, it's a guy that works for me, yeah, you can move over there. But sometimes they just show up. So my boss at the BBC, Eric, joined my Facebook profile. And I was really perturbed by this. You know, I don't know if I want Eric knowing all those things about me. And I definitely don't want him knowing I was in Paris yesterday. So, <laughs> Oops, to, too late. To add something to that, I think you actually touched on the point that, that stimulates a thought in my own mind that uh, related directly is about privacy, the segmentation of identity, if you yeah. will. Uh, like you, I'm on all the networks, but the, the, I don't really pay much attention to Facebook. I, actually, I made the mistake a lot of people did, hmm. which was you know follow everyone back and all that stuff in the early days, and now, now <laughs> it's just a mess. So I'm not in there. Twitter's the place I spend most time on. That's my social network. It's not just a chat tool. It's a social network. So I've, I've, I actually spend a lot of time in paying attention to other people in that place. I'm, I'm a member of niche networks in my profession, which I don't spend a lot of time in, but I can see the need to do that. And, in fact, all these crunches we've been talking about are going to happen way before 2013. Yeah. You're looking at next year. Yeah. I mean, this notion of, of quick videoing, I've seen that already where it's an issue. Already I've seen that happening. I do a lot of it myself on my Nokia phone. And I've seen it where it's, as you said, Richard, uh, uh, or was it Ewan, actually, that you videoed, it's gone, it's live, and the recording's out there before anyone can say, hang on a second. So uh, are we into permission things? Probably. Should we get used to this? Probably. But you're going to see technologies coming up with little block signals, things like that. So the only way you're going to stop this is if you've got something that simply blocks access to it at that moment. You won't stop it eventually. But all these are issues that are with us right now, not in 2013. So this will affect how we behave. I also think that we're going to see each of us making our own choices far more than we have done on who we connect with because we'll have the power to make those decisions. At the moment... It's difficult. So you get email, for instance, which is just a flood of stuff thrown at you. Uh, I, I don't regard email as the most important communication channel. You know, I've got Outlook that's got an inbox that's got about 3,000 unread items, and I couldn't care less because I don't go in the inbox. I have folders, I have filters, alerts, rules, you name it, of things I choose that I want to pay attention to, and that's what I pay attention to. Everything else doesn't get seen at all, and I, I sleep well at night. And I think of people I know, clients and others, who are, have hell every day about their email. And I think yeah, you're going to see more of this as people learn how to control this themselves. And it is a selfish choice, largely. But the, the good thing is that you will make uh, sensible choices on who you connect with. And that reflects in social networks and a lot of other things. And that is with us right now. 
And that will have implications by the time we get to 2013. And just one quick question. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, I suppose it's, a, it's a question I have around intergenerations. Is this an intergenerational issue? And I don't mean a static us and them. Is it a case, because I mean, having seen this, some of the stuff that, that, that the, the younger generation puts on, well, by younger generation, I mean younger than me, puts on Bebo and puts on Facebook, it, you know, it's not the kind of that controlled, I will keep this for these friends, this for my professional network. Right. It's, it's everything. It's all out there. And will it be the case that as they get older, they will start exercising more control and being more concerned well, about you, privacy. Well, you've got the generational thing right now, without any question. There's been references already. And I see it, I have to tell you, I see it daily when I go to some of my clients' offices. The younger you are, uh, particularly if you're in your early 20s, in the workplace, in a typical big corporation, you've got different attitudes, different behaviours, different desires, different uh, wishes of how you want to conduct yourself in the day, connecting with other people. That's not all about Outlook and email attachments and, and track changes in the bloody Word documents, stuff like that. I've already heard of, I haven't seen it myself, a company in, in California somewhere who had a job ad uh, in, a, in a paper that was um, included one of the benefits it listed as a bullet point, employee benefit, was free access to your Facebook in the workplace. <laughs> Inevitable. You're going to see that. that. That, the question, a young hire you know, being interviewed by the recruiter, sitting there in that final interview, and the recruiter's thinking, he's got his list thinking, you know, he's going to want to know about the pension plan, retirement benefits. You know, Christ, get a life. That's not the interest. It's going to be things like, what brand of router do you have? Uh, is the Wi-Fi in all the buildings? Those are the kinds of important things to that person. And the, the kind of model of mobile device he or she's going to get and, and the laptop or whatever it is, those are the important questions that are driving a lot of the changes. And, and, and it really informs us on everything we've talked about, behaviours on, on privacy, uh, friends, you name it. And This is very much generational. So I'm, I'm going to spark a fight here real quickly. So if Neville never reads his email and I use Twitter only as a broadcast medium, we are never going to communicate because I also don't answer the phone. So, uh, hey, this I is, answer the phone. I do no, answer the phone. This, this is an interesting thing, right? So I, a long time ago, I gave up talking on the phone. Uh, I did it for Lent. Um, no, I'm joking. Um, I, I gave it up because I just stopped being able to get my work done if I answered the phone all day. So I, I got, at first I had voicemail and I had an assistant whose sole job it was to write down the messages and email them to me. And then a company called Spinbox came out and, and that person lost their job. So <laughs> I, what I would actually put to the group, though, is in 2013, we're all going to have sort of centered our communication styles around where we're strongest. So I'm strongest in the, in the written word, which is obvious because I'm a musician, but I, I'm very strong in the written word. You're, very, you're strong on, on quick, short messaging back and forth. I suspect there's someone here who's a talker. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, and that's, by the way, very healthy and good and, and probably a good cross-spectrum of, of society. What happens in 2013? How, how do we communicate with each other? Just a quick point on that. Is, will, will it not depend on the persona we're inhabiting at that particular time? So, I mean, if I, I, I communicate with Neville on Twitter, but equally I communicate with other people via email. And mm -hmm. equally, I will walk across the office and talk to my boss in his, in his office because I know he doesn't use any of those. <laughs> so, I, I, mean, I don't know. That doesn't really kind of avoid your question. But it works perfectly if you're in the building, but what if you're in Kazakhstan and he's in China? Uh, well, um, a, just, just to answer uh, me in talking, I uh, never, ever answer a phone that comes from withheld number. Um, I, I'm sure there's many of you that uh, I see some nodding heads here. Um, my time is too valuable, far too valuable. Withheld, don't care, 
goes to Spinvox. Um, and, and then I'll deal with it after, afterwards. And if you are from a withheld number, that's seriously, it is your problem. You're not getting cash from me. You're not going to get my attention. Just because I, I, I simply don't have time. And then the other problem I've got is I, um, during, during the day, I don't get the opportunity generally to, to do one-to-one, to do um, real-time. Um, it is a very much a continuous uh, partial attention, or was that what it was called? Um, I'll get to it. So it's very intimate, uh, a telephone speaking to me, because it's extremely precious uh, to me. So I'll use instant message, uh, and I'll use Twitter. Um, I forgot what your original question so was. So what like. the question is, 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 is my continuous communication. No, 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 that's good. I liked it. Um, and, and I'm only teasing you, by the way. I, 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 uh, my question is, in the future, assuming that we become more geo-distributed, we become more global, we have more of these smart devices and technology, how the heck do we keep communicating? I'll tell you, do you know what my favorite feature uh, right now is wherever I am on the planet, I just absolutely love that I can take my BlackBerry with Google Talk. If you have a BlackBerry, get Google Talk on it. It is amazing because it just works all the time wherever you are as long as you've got GPRS. And I love the fact that when I walk, I come off a plane, nobody cares where I am. And if you want to get me, you get me on Google Talk. If you want a real-time interaction with me, that's how you get me. And I tell people, Google Talk um, or MSN, but Google Talk on the BlackBerry, doesn't matter where I am. So for the, the Kazakhstan thing, and we have people that work for us in the Ukraine, they're like, yeah, um, I don't really care where they are as long as I can talk to you at an agreed time or I can beep you and say, I want to talk to you right now. Um, so I use instant messaging that way. So by 2013, that's going to be really cool because it will actually work properly. What do you think? Yeah, I actually, because I look a bit further forward, uh, we, we did some work with, with people about the future of work and the future of skills and, and what sort of skills will be needed by, and valued by people in, in organisations in the, in, in the far future. And one of the things that comes out of that and, and, and a lot of other studies that we do is that the advance of some of this technology means that we, are going, as humans, are going to have to make more decisions that we never had to make before. And I think that's really important. So, for example, when we all used a telephone and we didn't have these other things, we didn't have to make a decision about what mechanism to use to call a particular person because we just used the phone. Uh, and similarly, you know, there, there, there will be other, other things uh, based on, on, on all this information that you've got. You then have choices, like um, in, in the case of work, you know, uh, buzzing somewhere. Hey, sorry, that was my, I was on the Twitter back channel. Sorry. You're trying to talk already, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, you're going to have this, this situation where um, we don't have work-life balance like we talk about at the moment. We don't have work-life integration because you'll be able to work anywhere at any time that suits the job that you're doing. But you've got to make a decision then. <laughs> when are you working? When are you private? When are you, when are you enjoying yourself? When, you, when are you, in my case, both. But when, when are you doing that thing that's not work? And you didn't have to think about that when we all work nine till five. So you know, a lot of these changes that come along that innovate give you flex flexibility and freedom, but they actually mean that you have to make decisions that you never had to make before. And I think that we're not, as a human race, actually ready for a lot of those decisions. We've got to train ourselves again, get used to that, and that's where some of this culture comes along about whether, whether people are ready to, uh, to, to accept the technology. It's not just about when the technology is ready for people, it's when people are ready for the technology. It's a bit like robots. You know, we, we talk a lot about how, how far a robot's going to be in, in, in the years to come. Uh, I don't mind if my mother-in-law, you know, healthcare is, is a big thing for them, and, and I don't mind if my mother-in-law's looked after by a robot. My wife has a different opinion. And, and that's the point, that we have to be ready for the technology. Question here. I know we've been talking about... 
know we've been talking about privacy quite a bit, but I want to bring back a point um, that there are kind of three parties to any privacy conversation. Mm-hmm. One of whom is the people who's giving out the information. That's all of us here. The second of whom is consuming it. That's all of us here. And the third of them is who's got to look after it. And that's, well, most of us here. So your point about having a LinkedIn profile for professional, Facebook for home, which is a really laudable idea, you didn't answer the question of what does Google think you are? Hmm. And it's, it's, we have to learn a lot more. We have to have a lot more mistakes, a lot more lost flash drives, a lot more people who don't get hired because someone sees their Facebook profile or they get fired because someone sees their Facebook profile. And we've seen a lot of that already. When blogging came out, people were getting fired for blogging. Hmm. You know, now people are like getting hired for it and it's like the biggest thing you can get a pay rise for. We need to see a lot more about losing, uh, losing jobs, losing identity, losing these kinds of things before we understand how to deal with it. And it is generational. I mean, we just don't understand it now. And go actually, about skills, we don't understand about work life either. We need to, like, we're, we're not going to do it. We're not the right people for this. It's not going to be 2013. It's going to be another 50 years before we realize how to handle this stuff properly. And we are probably so far ahead that we're just guessing. But perception is different. Because if you, we, we were talking earlier on, we were both at a gig with Tim Berners-Lee, and he was talking about, you know, in terms of the web, people are so used to it now. You use it for almost everything, you know. And, and you think that it's been there a long time, but actually it hasn't. You know, it's a baby. It's not even an infant in, in, in the scale of things. And, and we don't understand what the effect of using it has on, on society and, and how we do stuff and, and that sort of thing. So he's absolutely right that, that, you know, it will take a lot longer because of that learning process, and, and it's like any other learning process. Actually, I'm going to hand it back to you. It, it, I accidentally discovered an economist from a year ago that my daughter had taken up to her room and been doing unknown things with, but had, it had wandered way back and made it way back to my bedside table and, of course, was in a stack of magazines with a bunch of other economists. And I picked it up and I was reading an article and I actually didn't know it was a year old, for, which is pretty sad, actually. And this article was on whether Facebook would overtake MySpace. This is a year ago. I want to remind everyone of this. One year ago, there were very smart people having a very fraught argument about whether Facebook would exceed MySpace. And I think we all right now can sort of safely say, yes, it has. 2013 is a very long time away. A lot can happen between now and then. If you think back five years ago, what was there five years ago? We're talking about, you know, it really is, could be a sea change in some ways, and yet you still won't be able to make a phone call from Tottenham Court Road. And I think, if I can jump in there in terms of cultural difference, a year is a long time in the digital space. But equally, I think, to come back to your point, it's interesting. I think, you know, in five years' time, the people hiring staff will be the people who essentially grown up almost with Facebook. So I think your question about people losing jobs, you know, will, will that create more people to be more cautious about what they put online? I don't think it will. I think people making the hires in you know, up to five years' time will be aware that they also put all their private life online and they will be more forgive, potentially more forgiving of hiring staff that have done that. Um, but it, just to deal with the other point, I think you're right, it will take a lot more... Um, lost laptops, lost memory sticks in order to kind of get people quite enough outraged in order to kind of demand that the government does something about its own use of data. But that, that I think, is the whole kind of bottom-up, top-down situation again. I, I think there's a, there, that part of that learning process is how organisations learn. I mean, you made the point about blogging and whether it's a bad... You know, organisations regard it as a bad thing and then suddenly it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah, it's, it's the same with the internet generally. You know, there was a lot of... We forget already that... When the, when the internet first came along, 
uh, to corporates, they were scared by it, first of all. We can't let people have access to this. And then they started doing it during lunch times, you know, because it, it was OK then when they're not supposed to be working. And, and now most organisations can't, can't exist unless they, people can Google some, some of the time and, and do stuff on the internet. So, so it is all part of that learning process. I want to come back to that guy by the pillar over there, sorry, um, who, who mentioned about the social aspect of it. I, I, just to say that, you know, when, when you have a team of futurologists, if anybody ever builds a team of futurologists as a tip, um, you must have people from really diverse backgrounds. And we benefit a huge amount from that. There's, there's actually four in our team, uh, and we're all from different backgrounds. And, and, and one, one of the people who we actually work with most, who, who is a sort of semi-futurologist but not part of the team, is, is exactly a psychologist, and, and it studies human behaviour and, and drivers for how things are going to change, and that's really important to us. It's really important to how, how people are going to consume services and, 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 and use stuff in the future. I mean, there was a really good thing about, just, just <laughs> makes you giggle, about um, how people shop, right? Because the stereotype for shopping, my wife shops. You know, she goes to the mall, she spends the whole day there, she goes to each shop twice, and goes back to the first one, buys what she wants. And I go to the mall, I go in the shop, I buy it, I go home, I play with it. Now, um, online, we found, when we did the psychology, people invert, all right? So the stereotype on, online for shopping is inverted. I spend hours looking at different sites and things online for the spec of the thing that I want, <laughs> and then eventually I'll click and buy and check out and, and get it delivered. She goes straight to the site she wants online because it's not a nice experience. It's not as lovely an experience as spending a day in the mall. So she, she goes straight to the, to, to, to the thing and, and, and buys it and checks out and, and it gets delivered. And it's almost an invite, and we found that happens. Uh, and that's the real. That's just one example, but it's a it's a, a real example of how in business you can use the skills of, of people behaviour and studying that in order to make sure that you do the right thing for your customers. No, if I can just, sorry, just chip in with a really quick anecdote on that. Um, I, I totally appreciate you kind of talking about stereotypes, but again, we are talking about stereotypes. And it's a really interesting um, piece of research that I think Dana Boyd either did or wrote about on her blog, and it was looking at the way teenage girls in the US um, shop using the internet. And what they found was, what she found was that, I probably won't get this in the, the exactly right order, but it was along these lines. People went online, they, they kind of searched around for what it was they wanted to buy. They then went to the nearest store, tried it on, took photos of themselves wearing it, went home, uploaded those pictures onto Facebook, got feedback from their friends as to which outfit looked the best, then searched online for the nearest store that sold it the cheapest, and then went into the store and bought the cheapest garment that they could possibly so, find. So the, going right back to the first question that I think Richard posed is that when we've all got these um, internet devices uh, in a few years' time, I think it'll be a few more than 2013 actually, but anyway, um, she won't need to go home in between times. That's the point. She'll do it all there and then wherever she wants. But arguably you could do it today. I want This person's been very patient back here, so I want to let them in. Yeah. Yeah, well, when I got here tonight and sat down, I started getting immediately very frustrated. Now I've had a few free drinks, I feel a bit more relaxed. So um, I'm probably going to make a complete idiot myself. But uh, I, the, the conversation was, I, I appreciate you're all incredibly clever um, people and a lot of you scientists. And we're very interested in, in the way the future is going. And we're very concerned about where we're going to be in 2013. But the room's quite empty. And, and what... For me, the, the big elephant in the room is, is what's happening all around us right now economically. Yeah. And what I'd really love to know from everyone on the panel is how you're thinking about the future, and that's your job to think about the future, but how have your views of the future, how have your views of 2013 changed in the last couple of months, in the last, sort of, say, since September? How have your views altered, and how are we going to get to the 2013 you want to see? Hmm. I'm, I'm happy to... Sorry, kick off if no one else wants to. I mean, it's, it is a very good question, and uh, it's a very difficult one, and it's, it's one that I wanted to come along and, and talk about 
at least bring it up tonight. Um, and it, it comes back to this idea that I, I kind of work with in my head of social media, especially from a, you know, a PR marketing perspective. And it, it boils down to the social aspect and the media aspect. And by media, I'm thinking, and this is my own you know, kind of dichotomy, if you like, dealing with media in terms of content, in terms of applications, in terms of widgets, in terms of software, whatever. Um, and I think within the PR and marketing industry, it comes back to my frustration around that lack of, in, in, in a lot of quarters, lack of cultural change. And I think given client budgets being kind of slashed, especially around digital in some areas, and, and, and you know, I'm seeing this and my colleagues or ex-colleagues are seeing it as well, um, I think the problem is the social aspect is the one that requires the most or is the area that should have the most investment um, from businesses. Investing in talking to their customers, getting to know their customers better, dealing with them, answering queries, you know, being there to provide them with the information that they need. But that's a long term, you know, building trusted relationships takes a long time. And it's very difficult to, to measure and kind of, well, not difficult to measure, but it's more difficult to measure tangible returns on that than it is in terms of producing content or creating an app. You can measure that, it's tangible. And I think, and I hope I'm wrong, but I think client money in the future, given the economic downturn, will go more towards potentially um, more, more traditional online advertising, more traditional marketing, where they're creating content, creating apps that they can seed out and have people use and they can measure return rates on that so they know they're getting kind of a good ROI, if you like, rather than spending time and money investing in building good relationships with their customer base. Can I, can I just ask how you feel about innovation? You're, you're sort of talking about clients maybe going back to more traditional hmm. spending patterns, but how do you think the current situation might affect anything moving forward in an innovative way? I don't think it'll, it'll damage innovation, providing you can demonstrate to the client that innovation is relatively cheap and can add significant value, and they can measure that, that difference in terms of... Hmm. Not... Right. That's all another debate. Real quick, I want to let her answer, then, and we'll circle back. Okay, so I, I agree. I think that's a really good question. And, you know, coming from an advertising agency and an advertising background, at the moment... Digital is one of the key mediums that you can actually target people. I can target a you know, 21-year-old woman who's interested in this on this site. And moving forward, in order to make clients' money go further, we have to apply that targeting and those rules to other mediums. So I have a Sky Plus box. Why can't I log into it and it knows who I am? It knows I'm a woman and give me advertising, TV advertising targeted to me. And, and, you know, linked in with your innovation question, I, I think that, that companies like Sky will have to start developing that. And I think that's what clients are going to be looking for in order to start spending their money. Advertising that, um, you know, as, as we've been moving into bad times, advertising that is fully accountable and targeted to the person you're talking to. So uh, I'm going to jump in here just a minute and say sure. something because there's a, yeah. a comment that went there. The, the first one is I'm going to say the last crash, which by the way was like a tiny little blip compared to this one. Uh, I had just sold my company and, and sort of left and was taking a break and watched this thing happen. And some of the best innovations in the last five years happened during that downturn in the market. Because what happened is you had a lot of smart people who were unemployed who had broadband and trust me, broadband's like oxygen. You turn that off last. Um, right before the food. Um, what was interesting is you saw a ton of innovation, but you also saw a ton of innovation that was cheap. Because you couldn't afford to have an office with a 
300,000-pound or $300,000 Coke machine in it. It just didn't make any sense. You know, you had you and two guys in your garage. It was kind of cold out there. You wore sweaters. And you used your old MacBook and your old, and, you know, and that, by the way, some of the best innovations that came out of that time came out of situations like that. They didn't come out of massive, no offense, massive big facilities at the BBC mm-hmm. or places like BT. They came out of small, small garages where, where people, groups of people getting together are working virtually. So coming back to the question of, of the economic downturn, I view it as both, it's, it, there, it's a really bad thing. People are going to lose houses. They're going to lose money. They're going to be hungry. But I do think it's a real opportunity for innovation and to make use digital as a way of, of inspiring, entertaining, and educating people. I, I agree. In fact, it is, it's a terrific question. It's one of those very difficult ones because, you know, I'm no economist, but it looks as though we are headed collectively in Europe, the U.S., and most countries into some serious, serious financial uh, restriction that will permeate everything that we do. And, you know, many of you, I'm sure, I'm certainly hearing, I already know three people who've been laid off in the last 30 days in this country in different industries. Uh, I've seen one client of mine cancel a project that was actually a significant amount of money. And that's been cancelled, not postponed. And a direct result of changes going on in his company with regard to to budgets because of uncertainty. Uh, I hope it doesn't all translate into taps being turned off in terms of people's innovation, the freedom to continue doing what they're doing. Yet I fear that's probably going to happen a little bit. Hence, then, what Richard just said, I think, is interesting. People are going to find their lives turned a little upside down because their company's gone broke, they've been laid off, or they themselves see it as an opportune moment to choose something else. And does that mean you know, that you're going to see a flurry of things? It's impossible to give a prediction on that basis. What it does mean, though, is more radical change that some people will find as an opportunity to do something. They'll connect with other people that they otherwise wouldn't have done. Is it going to be a large-scale thing? Who the hell knows, to be frank? I just hope it doesn't mean that we suddenly see a drying up, as we may well see with other things going on. In my business area, like Simon's, uh, the the first thing you tend to see in a recession is cut in advertising, marketing, PR budgets, the soft things that companies find easy to stop while they look after paying the bills and keeping the heating going and people's salaries and stuff like that. So is that going to apply to that kind of new group that was hired to develop cool things in the back room? Possibly. Uh, So what's going to happen to them? They're going to go away and do something else? How? So these are all questions. I don't have answers, yet I do agree with Richard, though. I think we are maybe entering a time that's paradoxically uh, a great opportunity for something to come, although I couldn't tell you what that might be. Just a, a quick, a quick um, comment before John says something. I mean, it just, to echo Richard's point, it's a bit of a cliche, but necessity is the mother of all invention. If you, if you have to develop stuff you know, to, to simply survive in a, in, a, in, a, in a downturn economy, then at the end of the day, uh, you've, got, you've got to innovate. Yeah, I mean, two points come, come, come to mind. The first one, is I, I've mentioned already, this idea of, of, of open innovation, and I think that's important because it, it does lower costs. That's one of the reasons you might do it. It's not the total thing, but it, it's certainly one of the reasons in that you're, you're collaborating with somebody else and you share, you share the costs and the resources required for that as well as, as, uh, as, well as the other benefits. But the more interesting thing, I think, that comes from that, that lady's question, which, which is, is a really good one, is to think about what's left after this current downturn. Because if you and and if you think of it as a revolution rather than a, rather than just a downturn, okay. So when we had the industrial revolution, looking back, 
we were left with some industry after that. We were left with some, some machinery, we were left with some railroads in some cases, or, or however you look at it. In the 90s, after that downturn, we were left with the internet, which has then been a positive thing for, for we've spent the evening talking about what you can do with that. The difficulty with this one is that because it's a financial revolution, in that sense, it's difficult to understand what's left afterwards. And I think that's the more interesting question about what comes out of this one. Uh, I don't know the answer to that like you. I'm not, not an economist. But uh, I just feel it's slightly different this time from, from, those, other, from those other downturns because of that. Social, yeah. len- social lending. Yeah. Well yeah, I was actually so, getting the hook right about now. Um, any last questions or should we wrap up a bit? Anyone want to ask anything else? Yes, yes, back there. Hi. Um, before I start, I should say that I'm a total technophile, but <laughs> to put myself on the other side of the fence, the ubiquity of email has apparently created a massive rise in the use of the good old-fashioned letter. So what are we going to be reacting against technology-wise in 2013? Hmm. That's a great question. I'm happy to take a step at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, uh, to, to, if I understand your question, what are we going to react against technology? I would say that, um, uh, let me speak just for myself, is probably the best way, is, is the, the tech that is invasive as I perceive it to be. Uh, the stuff that, that, that thrusts things at me that I haven't asked for or, or p- pretends to be a friend that isn't. I see that already with simple stuff like personalized email, for instance. Um, and therefore, I'm on my guard against that, and I have tools and devices, usually other types of technology, to combat that stuff. So I think it comes down to trust. I think it comes down to how you use these technology tools uh, to build trusted connections with other people. And those are the things that I think are likely to be of concern to us, uh, particularly at that time. Great question, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I don't know, I've been thinking about this, this recently, you know, even, even up to a year ago when I was on Twitter, I, I would happily have a conversation with somebody in 140 characters for, for months, whereas now I, I find myself you know, being very, very open and meeting someone online going, hey, you know, fan- I'm going to this conference, fancy meeting up there, and, and meeting people I've never seen before, but actually having a, a two-hour, three-hour conversation with them. I wouldn't have done that, you know, probably a year ago. And I think moving forward in, in 2013, what's it going to bring? I, I think, if I'm going to be honest, it will, it will bring real-life conversations together as we get more and more used to, pe- you know, having conversations with, with each other online and, and this, you know, openness, having this open attitude. Yeah, what are we going to push back against? I sort of think it comes back to that thing I was talking about with decisions that you didn't have to make before. Because decisions are hard sometimes for people to make. They're quite difficult sometimes. And I think there will, technology will be forcing us to make those decisions that perhaps we just took for granted before, we didn't have to bother. And, and I think that will be a chore for, for people at first. I think we'll get over it, but I think by then we'll, we'll just be in the throes of, oh, God, I, I never used to have to bother with this, but now I've got to. So, uh, funny enough, when you were saying that, I started thinking about my vacation, which I'm, I'm leaving on the 17th. Uh, going to a small desert island in the Caribbean. Um, I was actually thinking about what in 2013, what I think we'll pay about, we'll pay money for. I think you'll pay money to not be connected. I think you'll pay a lot of money not to be connected. Big resorts in the Maldives, if they're still there, uh, if they're not underwater, um, will say, we don't have broadband. That'll be a selling point. You'll be like, oh, 
thank God they don't have broadband. That'd be wonderful. Um, I think you'll actually have places where they'll guarantee no one can reach you. So think about that. You know, this resort guarantees no one will be able to reach you for seven days. We guarantee it. Yeah. Or, or my dad's house, yeah. It's the Stone Ages there, too. Um, the biggest bugbear in 2013, I think, will be any kind of technology that thinks or attempts to control what you want to do online. I think personalization and choice is going to be, is going to be rife. I certainly hope it is. Uh, and anything that, that doesn't kind of fit into the bracket is just going to turn, turn me off. Uh, I'm hoping that we'll be able to solve the uh, information overload somehow. Um, I really don't want to know what people have had for breakfast on their Twitter feeds. I, I seriously don't care. Uh, but what I do care, it's a comment that you made earlier, I do care um, when they've got something really important to say. Uh, so I hope, I hope we have something like that. And the, the other thing I really hope we've got fixed is I want to be able to walk down Oxford Street on the phone and for it not to disconnect. <laughs> Shall we, uh, do we have time for one more, or should we, should we cut it there? One last one? Last one. More an observation. About ten years ago, I was at BT doing internet strategy, and I put BT's futurologists and a bunch of other guys together to work about what the future had been from 1998 to 2008. And they worked out that the first thing was every commercial business would be fascinated with the net present value of your future spend, which is what they're all trying to data mine. The second thing they worked out is that communities in the early days would be friendly and happy, but then will come the cheats and the people who um, basically abuse them. And then the third thing they worked out, you'll get massive regulation coming in of the new media, because that's what's happened in every other media. I don't know if your thought is on yeah, it. We skipped that, the regulation ten years ago. Yeah, does anyone want to take a crack? Yeah, it's good. So, I think, the, I think we've got the hook, so yeah. thank you very much. Kinwag Live, Christmas Future Crystal Balls at the Slug and Lettuce in Soho, London on the 4th of December 2008 was a Chinwag production sponsored by the UKTI. For more information, please visit www.live.chinwag.com. <laughs>